0: Greetings to all the ghouls, goblins, and ghosts listening to today's episode of the Conspiraporn Podcast, brought to you by www.conspiraporn.com. My name is Matt, and I'll be your host for today's episode, and if this is your first episode of Conspiraporn, I'd like to welcome you and state that you might want to go back and listen to our last episode as it was a two-part account of the history of supernatural horror and folklore and literature going back nearly 6,000 years, uh, the topics of fear and the unknown as well as ideas of the macabre and supernatural leading up to the birth of a gothic novel in the 1700s and ending at the dawn of the 20th century in the year 1900, uh, which came with the invention of the motion picture and radio and the impact that this had on storytelling. And this week's episode is also going to be a two-parter, and we'll continue that theme and tackle the history of supernatural horror from the year 1900 to the year 2021. And this particular episode that you are listening to right now, Uh, which is part three in this series, is designed to hopefully cover a good chunk from the years 1900 to 1970, uh, which part four will then finish off with uh, the 1970s to the year 2021 and beyond. And as I stated last episode... And I'll state again with this episode, uh, there's simply too much to try and cover with this topic, and I'm sure I left a lot of key authors and events and books out uh, last time, just as I'll surely miss a lot of key events, books, movies, and television uh, this go-around as well. So this isn't meant to be a definitive account of supernatural horror in a historical context, uh, but hopefully to present an interesting and substantial lineage on the genetics of horror in the 20th and 21st centuries. So technically you are listening to part three on the history of supernatural horror and I'd again like to thank those handful of people out there who are tuning in and your feedback or critiques are always appreciated and I'd like to mention one other little thing here uh, to start uh, the episode today and that is the new mental pop uh, Facebook page which is uh was created in retaliation to the fact that Facebook deleted my previous two pages due to community standard violations so our Conspira porn Facebook page had uh, about 10,000 followers and millions of likes and shares and page views, and it was deleted several months ago. So now after nearly a five-month uh, account restriction, I'm back again to try it with the new Mental Pop Facebook page, so I hope you'll go seek that out. And likewise, we have a private group called Conspiracult uh, that I hope you'll go and take part in. Um, I have a few Instagram pages and several websites as well. I'll talk a little bit more about all that at the end of today's episode, uh, but for right now, let's get down to the history of horror in the 20th and 21st centuries. And ladies and gentlemen, I know it's uh, unprofessional of me to start the program. I'm all off by apologizing if I mispronounce any words or stumble along uh, this one hour plus journey today, but I'm not a professional and we're dealing with a lot of subject matter here uh, to be exact, 70 years worth of a semi-detailed outline of horror history And me trying to read handwritten notes and notes on my laptop as well as book passages. All without any editing. And uh, done completely on my shitty cell phone. So please excuse me in advance if I make some mistakes today. And please feel free to hit me up if you think I left out any important details out of today's episode. Also, please feel free to crack open a beer, have a shot, or a glass of wine while listening today. I encourage you to make a drinking game out of today's events. And please excuse me if I, too... Uh, have many beers over the course of the day's episode, and I'm just a bumbling, drunk maniac by the end of our story. The point of this podcast is uh, to share a little information and opinion and perspective every few weeks, and have a little bit of fun, and dissect some infotainment, and maybe we'll all learn something together today here, boys and girls. So let's all hold hands as we venture deeper into the nightmare. Now, to bring us up to speed a little bit, uh, the last episode ended with some of the key events of the late 1800s, which helped to shape the evolution of horror in the mainstream. And that was with the famous case of Jack the Ripper in Whitechapel, London, as well as the serial killer H.H. H. Holmes in Chicago, uh, both of which gave birth to what we might today consider to be serial killer culture and the fascination with true crime and the serial killer other key events from the 1890s was the publication of the novel Dracula by Bram Stoker, the invention of the motion picture and radio, both of which would heavily influence the direction that horror and science fiction were to take over the coming decades and century. Uh, so if you're interested in the ideas of horror and the supernatural prior to the year 1900, please take some time to go back and explore the previous two episodes of Conspira Porn*. And as we're now entering a massive boom of horror in the mainstream at the invention of motion pictures and radio and television, which rapidly accelerates over the decades and hits a crescendo in the 1980s, it's hard to know where to truly begin at the dawn of the 20th century, as there's just so much to cover over this century. But let's open the coffin and dig in with the first thing that comes to mind, and that is something that carries over from Part 3, and that is what was known as the Grand Guignol which flourished on the Paris stage in the 1890s and lasted all the way to, uh, through to the 1960s. Uh, it was particularly popular during the 1920s. Now, The term originally referred to a puppet, uh, but came to represent brief plays centered around violence, murder, rape, ghostly apparitions, and suicide. Now, these plays typically featured a distinctly bleak worldview and gory special effects, particularly in their climaxes. The horrors depicted in the Grand Guignol uh, were generally not supernatural. Rather, these plays often explored altered states like insanity, hypnosis, or panic. Now, a few of the titles and themes of the plays were as follows, and pardon my pr- uh, mispronunciations of these French titles. Uh, Le des Hallucinations uh, by André Delord. Uh, when a doctor finds his wife's lover in the operating room, he performs a graphic brain surgery, rendering the adulterer a hallucinating semi-zombie. Now insane, the lover, patient, hammers a chisel into the doctor's brain. Un crime dans un manchon de fausse by André Delord. uh two hags in an insane asylum, use scissors to blind a pretty young female inmate out of jealousy. Le Horrible Passion by André Delord, a nanny strangles the children in her care. Uh, Le Basseur dans la note by Marci- Maurice Laveau, a young woman visits the man uh, whose face she horribly disfigured with acid, and he obtains revenge. Next up, worth mentioning, is the 1902 novel The Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, uh, no, not strictly of the horror genre, it's considered the first Great novel of the 20th century and deals with the darker nature of, of civilization and humanity. Also published in 1902 is the famous tale of The Monkey's Paw by W. W. Jacobs, uh, which we briefly mentioned last episode. And The Monkey's Paw is a supernatural short story in which three wishes are granted to the owner of the monkey's paw, uh, but the wishes come with an enormous price for interfering with fate. And this idea uh, became the classic tale and has been reimagined and reinvented and adapted many times over the past 120 years, uh, perhaps most notably by Stephen King as the tale The Monkey in the 1985 book Skeleton Crew. And of course we can see that the story itself has a much more ancient connotation of the djinn or genie granting three wishes, which don't always turn out as the person who wished for them intended, and gives birth to the idea of be careful what you wish for, you just might get it. And also something worth mentioning with The Monkey's Paw is that, like the collection of short stories entitled entitled The King in Yellow by Robert uh, W. Chambers from the previous decade, The Monkey's Paw goes on to further present the now-classic horror trope of a cursed object, which causes madness and despair in all who, who view it or who have it in their possession. And The Monkey's Paw is arguably uh, the first uh, and most famous of horror stories involving the idea of a cursed object. And we can see that story mechanism presented time and time and time again over the coming century, uh, going all the way up to the lament configuration of Clive Barker in his famous Hellraiser series of the 1980s, uh, which unleashes unimaginable torments or pleasure, uh, depending on how you look at it, on all who would dare to open the infamous puzzle box. And we'll definitely uh, be talking a lot more about the works of Clive Barker later on in uh, the next episode. The 1904 uh, brings us uh, the collection from author M.R. James entitled Ghost Stories of an Antiquary, uh, heralding one of the most respected of this century's horror authors, particularly in his speciality of the quiet but creepy ghost story. And this collection is now uh, part of a centuries-long tradition of short ghost stories sprouting out of the birth of the gothic novel of the 1700s and 1800s. And up next in the long and illustrious heritage of supernatural horror and the weird and the uncanny comes with the first short story collection of one of my absolute favorite authors, and that is in the masterful storytelling of Algernon Blackwood. Uh, who's largely overlooked in the modern era, but uh, was somewhat of a powerhouse of prose during the early 20th century and would influence a wide variety of horror authors to come, including H.P. Lovecraft, who considered Blackwood one of only four people who he considered to be a master of supernatural horror and tales of uncanny terror. Now, Algernon Blackwood... Uh, hit the scene in 1906 with a collection of supernatural horror uh, tales uh, entitled The Empty House and Other Ghost Stories, and would go on to write a dozen more books, uh, collections of short stories, as well as full-length novels, uh, which would in turn be republished in dozens and dozens of other short story collections over the years. And he was also the author of a dozen full-length novels that were well-received. Some of his major works include A Prisoner in Fairyland, The Listener and Other Stories, The Human Chord, as well as a favorite series of mine, which is the John Silence series of novellas. He is perhaps most famous for the stories entitled The Willows and the Wendigo. Uh, Blackwood would become a well-known radio personality as well over the next few decades, uh, as he would regularly narrate his own short stories on air, which only further propelled him to somewhat of a celebrity of his day. And to be noted, And this also ties into some of the themes we talked about in the last episode with the increased interest in topics of the occult and mysticism in the mid and late 1800s. But Algernon Blackwood was also a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, uh, as well as being a Rosicrucian, which undoubtedly influenced some of the topics and themes of his works. And other notable authors and members of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn at the time were uh, William Butler Yeats, Arthur Macon, uh, Lord Dunsany, and Sax Romer, all of whom uh, would represent the last major push of English horror writers all the way up until the 1970s and 80s when James Herbert and Clive Barker would come along and bring new vitality to the English horror story. Uh, now, Algernon Blackwood didn't deal so much in horror or terror or shock value and uh, definitely never dealt in uh, gratuitous blood and gore. Uh, But his tales were more of the fantastical and mystical and subtle nature of the supernatural world and how this sometimes bleeds over into what we call reality. In my mind, along with the works of Arthur Macon from the previous decade, it was Algernon Blackwood who was the most influential uh, on the idea of cosmic horror, as would soon be personified by the works of H.P. Lovecraft through his imaginings of interdimensional and otherworldly creatures, which lurk just beyond our views. And beyond the views of human perception. Algernon Blackwood was all about subtlety and the weird and uncanny, and he often deals with topics of communication with nature spirits or topics of reincarnation and human evolution. By no means would all of Blackwood's stories, or even a very, very many of them, uh, be considered as horror in a classical sense, uh, but there's definitely a slow building of tension and dread and the fantastical. Uh, which ranks him as a preeminent author in the field of supernatural horror. And perhaps best to sum up the approach Blackwood took when writing his fiction, it's best to use a quote uh, from the man himself, in which he stated, quote, "'My fundamental interest, I suppose, is signs and proofs of other powers that lie hidden in us all, the extension, in other words, of human faculty.' So many of my stories, therefore, deal with extension of consciousness, speculative and imaginative treatment of possibilities outside our normal range of consciousness. Also, all that happens in our universe is natural under law, but an extension of our so limited normal consciousness can reveal new extraordinary powers and the world's word supernatural. Seems the best word for treating these in fiction. I believe it possible for our consciousness to change and grow, and that with this change we may become aware of a new universe. A change in consciousness, in this type I mean, is something more than a mere extension of what we already possess and know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, here is where we experience the most major shift in evolution and expansion of horror into the mainstream, and that is with the development of the motion picture and motion picture technology and the birth of cinema, uh, which would not only change the face and presentation of horror and science fiction, uh, but it will also change the face of everything for the next 120 years and continues to do so into the 21st century. Uh, now, please pardon me for the remainder of this episode. We're pretty much going to jump back and forth between literature and film, Uh, but I'll try to keep things in a coherency uh, between the genres of books and film and their constant influence on the nature of horror. I mentioned last episode that the short three-minute film, uh, Le Manor du Diable, also known in English as The Haunted Castle in 1896, is largely considered to be the first time that ghosts and monsters were put on the silver screen, and it's considered the first horror movie, even though it's only three minutes. And though among the first experiments with film, Uh, There were a number of gruesome and fantastic scenes, uh, but the first real horror movie was probably an actual movie, was William N. Siegel's uh, 16-minute version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1908. Uh, 1910 also notably gave us the very first on-screen adaptation of Frankenstein, uh, directed by J. Cyril Daly and with the involvement of the technological innovator Thomas Edison. Uh, 1911 brought us the publication of The Phantom de Opera* by Gaston Leroux. Uh, although every gothic novel had its midnight prowlers and deformed relatives kept under the stairs, uh, this work gave us a sympathetic anti-hero in The Phantom. And this theme again stretches back uh, to the 1800s, and arguably with the creation of Frankenstein, uh, hit the Frankenstein's monster, which is arguably the first monster of the modern era, an age uh, that ushered in the era of a relatable villain, of the story actually being a misunderstood monster or a sympathetic antihero. This had now become an age of recognizable and relatable monsters, uh, which would become iconic and included Frankenstein, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the Invisible Man, the Headless Horseman, Count Dracula, and several several others, including the Phantom uh, from The Phantom of the Opera. We have the publication of Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis, uh, which tells the story of salesman Gregor Samsa, who wakes up one morning to find himself inexplicably transformed into a huge insect or a cockroach and subsequently struggles to adjust to his new condition while his family begins to shun him and his newfound existence. Uh, the novella has been widely discussed among literary critics uh, with differing interpretations being offered, and it's very uh, psychological work questioning the value of human existence and self-worth and family ties and other deep themes of alienation. Uh, it's a troubling and memorable work and considered Kafka's most famous. The term Kafkaesque is used to describe a surreal dreamscape of reality flipped upside down, and it's largely attain- uh, attributable to the book The Metamorphosis. Uh, And as with so much of the horror coming out of the 1600s to the 1800s, uh, Germany and German storytelling uh, was always highly influential and experimental at the onset of motion picture. A number of German films were made in this decade uh, using the premise of artificial creatures. They include Der Golem in 1915, of which its splendid sets and performances and certain scenes are all clearly influential on later films, especially Frankenstein. And The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari from 1920 is considered a classic of the genre, and another expressionist German film in which the entire surreal landscape uh, was artificially created, and it was created in the mind of a madman. And while there are certain aspects and certain parts of Dr. Caligari uh, that we might chuckle at today as a modern audience, we can't lose sight that this was one of the first movies ever made and really does work masterfully as an art film, if nothing else. It's a highly stylized piece of, of, of art cinema, uh, with a mesmerizing soundtrack and an inventive plot, and inventive plot twists. And I can see how audiences in 1920 uh, would have found uh, this film shocking. 1922 brings us another classic and influential German uh, masterpiece, in the tale of Nosferatu, or a symphony of horror, in which the iconic figure of Count Orlok, is still influential to this day as a representation of vampirism and was heavily utilized in the book Salem's Lot by Stephen King, among other famous vampires of the modern era. And this classic interpretation presents the vampire as the plague bringer or the unclean infestation and goes right along with the Spanish flu of 1918 that killed 50 million people around the globe. But we'll talk more about the Spanish flu a little later in today's episode. 1927 then brings us another very famous German expressionist film, and that comes with the classic Metropolis, uh, which gave us Rotwang the Inventor, perhaps the earliest and certainly still an effective cinematic presentation of a mad scientist. And any serious investigation of the history of horror will time and time again bring up the involvement of Germanic folklore and influences. Uh, The term Gothic itself from Gothic novel uh, stems from the Goth people who were Germanic and played a significant role in the fall of the Roman Empire and the birth of medieval Europe. So I just wanted to res- uh, restate here uh, that it was no different with the invention of the motion picture, as the Germans heavily influenced the origins of horror and sci-fi cinema. And a bit of a side topic on this: uh, the history of horror and the uncanny, but it was in 1922 that Howard Carter and his patron Lord Carnavrin uh, first opened the tomb of Tutankhamun. And Carnarvon, Carnarvon, excuse me, died uh, soon after, start, uh, starting rumors of a curse, in which many other strange occurrences took place over the years, and has contributed the idea of the Curse of King Tut, or the Curse of the Mummy, which is still around at this very day. And uh, this would eventually give rise to the mummy itself as becoming an iconic horror character, most notably with the Universal Monsters, of which we will be discussing in some great detail very shortly. And undoubtedly, the tale of the curse of Tutankhamen and the idea of letting the dead and sleeping go sly and not disturbing uh, ancient edifices and relics also plays in the idea of cursed objects as a horror trope and would surely go on to influence many other writers, uh, such as H.P. Lovecraft, over the coming decades. And speaking of H.P. Lovecraft... Uh, The first issue of the highly influential and sought-after magazine Weird Tales is first published in 1923. And Weird Tales was the first all-fantasy magazine in the world, and it survived 32 years without ever showing any profit. And the magazine was able to enlist the help of several famous authors of the time, and had a small but dedicated fan base who were hungry for the types of stories that Weird Tales was known to produce. And as with the Graveyard Poets of the 1700s and the Penny Dreadfuls of the 1800s, there were attempts made by public officials of various cities to ban the November 1924 issue of the magazine over C.M. Eddy's story, The Loved Dead, uh, but the outrage only increased sales. And it was later joined uh, by famous Fantastic Mysteries in 1936 and Amazing Stories. And it was revived again in 1974 and again in 1984. Uh, it was in 1928 that a then largely unknown writer by the name of H.P. Lovecraft uh, would publish The Call of Cthulhu, which would help establish the Cthulhu mythos of which Lovecraft is now famous for. And Lovecraft was one, uh, la- one of the people largely responsible for bringing in the idea of interdimensional or cosmic horrors of ancient heritage and lost civilizations and the old ones and elder gods – of which have been slumbering for eons but might be awakened uh, by the unsuspecting or those performing certain incantations and rituals in order order to herald in a new age of these terrible and forgotten deities. And his work, in essence, is the culmination and logical extreme of the traditional horror tale, uh, concerned with foreign lands and beasts, uh, yet his meticulously detailed locations, particularly of his home state, bridge the gap toward the more modern style of horror writing lovecraft wrote nearly 70 short stories and novellas as well as several collaborations with other writers from 1908 until his death in 1937 uh, when he died of cancer at the age of 46 and while lovecraft was rather underappreciated in his own time his works have since since gained much merit and have been highly influential to other horror authors in the decade since, uh, particularly with those who write in the vein of cosmic horror, or ideas of elder gods and lost civilizations. Among some of the most famous works uh, are *The Call of Cthulhu*, *Dagon*, *The Lurking Fear*, *The Rats in the Walls*, *Pickman's Model*, *The Shadow Out of Time*, and *The Mountain of Madness*. Herbert West, Reanimator, and many, many more. And, of course, it was H.P. Lovecraft who first gave us the insidious tales of the diabolical Necronomicon, uh, which was first introduced in his short story entitled The Hound, which was published in 1924. According to Lovecraft, the Necronomicon uh, was originally called Al-Azit, which is an Arabic word that Lovecraft defined as the nocturnal sound made by chittering insects, uh, supposed to be the howling of demons. And state stated The Worst of Lovecraft to become highly influential to many other authors, with dozens and dozens, perhaps even hundreds, of short stories and works uh, coming over the decades after his death, uh, written by many diff- different authors, all expanding upon the Cthulhu mythos and the infamous uh, Necronomicon. And, of course, this was a huge influence on the Evil Dead series of films and books and TV shows, which would highlight the Necronomicon ex mortis or the Book of the Dead. And last but not least, it's also worth mentioning that Lovecraft wrote the book Supernatural Horror in Literature, uh, which was a 28,000-plus-word essay on the history of the horror novel, and which I referenced uh, several times in Part 1 and 2 of this Conspiraporn podcast. And the works of Lovecraft continue to be adapted to this day, most recently with the cool little Nicolas Cage film The Color Out of Space from 2019. And as I read a lengthy passage of quotations from Lovecraft's book, Supernatural Horror and Literature, at the beginning of part one of this four-part series, Uh, I'm not going to say any more about Lovecraft other than to state uh, that quite obviously his work from the 20s and 30s have had a huge impact on the evolution and representation of the horror genre and how certain books are written and certain films are produced. Cthulhu has become a hot marketing item. Uh, with bobbleheads and Funko Pops and plushy dolls and stickers and posters and lunchboxes and album covers, etc., etc., etc. And like uh, Edgar Allan Poe, Lovecraft created an imprint and legacy that they never lived to see. And back to the year 1923, which was the first publication of Weird Tales. It was also in 1923 that Universal Pictures would take their uh, first real foray into the horror genre with a silent version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, starring Lon Chaney Sr. This was followed by the 1925 Universal film The Phantom of the Opera, also starring Lon Chaney Sr. And these were the first of many, many successful Universal pictures uh, that would dominate the cinema and imaginations of the 1930s and 1940s. 1925 also gave us the first real stage version of the theatrical performance of Dracula. And it was in 1927 that Bela Lugosi, a Hungarian actor and former, former cavalry officer uh, appeared in the American version of the Dracula stage play, and it was from this play that Lugosi would later go on to be cast in the film version uh, from Universal Pictures in 1931 and would go on to become a huge box office success that would truly launch the Universal monsters into full swing. In the years of the Great Depression, roughly 1929 to 1933, it was radio and films which predominantly were utilized to entertain people and take their minds off of the situation at hand and escalating tensions uh, on the world stage. Radio plays and mass-produced pulp fiction was huge during these years as the television set was just now hitting the market and roughly only 1,000 TVs existed in the United States at this time and only those who could afford the hefty price tag. And the first televisions weren't commercially produced in mass until 1934 in Germany with the Telefunken, uh, which carried a price tag of $455, uh, which is roughly $8,000 uh, by today's comparison of inflation. So during these years of uh, the Great Depression, televisions were largely not available to the general public, uh, nor were they affordable. Uh, so it was with radio plays and books, and going to the movies uh, that most Americans spent their leisure time and enjoyed their entertainment. A movie ticket in 1930 cost about 25 cents, which by today's rate of inflation uh, was less than $4. So even during uh, the period of the Great Depression, going to the movies wasn't uh, out of the question. It was a treat that many working Americans could still afford. And the cinema began to boom during this period, And uh, with the, the horror movie and the classic icons of horror cinema. And it was throughout this decade of the 1930s with the Universal Horror Monsters where the impossible took place in a tight, false world of studio-built landscapes where every tree was carefully gnarled in expressionistic fright, every house cunningly garbled, uh, gabled in gothic mystery, every shadow beautifully lit into lurking terror. Uh, Todd Browning's Dracula started it all and became the money spinner of 1931 for Universal Pictures. And to be noted, Tom Browning uh, was also the director of the much sought after and lost classic film London After Dark from 1927, which starred Lon Chaney. And he was also the director of the disturbing and unforgettable film Freaks from 1932. Uh, the success of Dracula for Universal saw another film the next year uh, 1932. Uh, while filmgoers were now to witness James Whale's Frankenstein, introducing the man who ousted Lugosi as the studio's resident ghoul in Boris Karloff. And Frankenstein was also that year's top grossing movie, uh, whereas Carl Froon's The Mummy in 1933 also starred Karloff, uh, but did not bid so well financially. However, the plethora of sequels kept Universal Studios busy for quite some time. The Wolfman uh, blitzed the box office in 1941, introducing Lon Chaney Jr. in his most famous role. And some of the most notable classic Universal movies uh, and horror monsters are as follows. Uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1923. The Man Who Laughs in 1925, which is most noted as being the physical basis for the iconic Joker uh, from DC Comics. It was The Man Who Laughs, which influenced one of the most popular comic book villains and anti-heroes of all time with The Joker. And also worth mentioning uh, that the main character in The Man Who Laughs also played the lead role of Cesare in the 1920 silent film The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, uh, which was portrayed by German actor Conrad Veidt, who had a very interesting career in film as well as an interesting personal life. Then uh, we had The Phantom of the Opera in 1925. The Cat Creeps from 1930. Of course, uh, we had Dracula in 1931, Frankenstein in 1932, Murders in the Rue Morgue in 1932, as well as The Mummy in 1932, The Invisible Man from 1933, The Black Cat from 1934, The Bride of Frankenstein from 1935, uh, Werewolf of London, 1935, The Raven, 1935, Dracula's Daughter in 36; Son of Frankenstein in 39; and The Wolfman in 1941, uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon in 1954, and literally dozens upon dozens of other films, uh, some more successful and memorable than others, uh, but from 1930 uh, into the early 1960s, horror was the bread and butter for Universal Pictures. But their popularity was beginning to dwindle due to oversaturation. And as with most things, uh, it was by the 1950s uh, and with several Abbott and Costello movies where the comedy duo came face to face uh, with the most famous of the Universal monsters. uh, It entered the realms of parody. And a lot of fans, especially the actual horror fans that originally seen the first of the Universal movies in the 1930s, had begun to lose interest. Unfortunately, As television sets have now become uh, more and more widespread and available to mass audiences, Uh, the original monsters such as Dracula and Frank and the Mummy uh, now lived on to a new generation of children who could watch their exploits on late-night creature features. Uh, But we'll talk more about uh, the television creature features and the eclectic and wide variety of horror hosts a little bit later on in today's episode. Uh, For those who were craving new and inventive horror, they were in luck. Especially they wanted their horror bloody and in full color. Enter the amazing contributions of Hammer Films. Hammer is a British uh, film company that was founded in 1934, uh, but truly entered the horror foray and found its prominence in the late 1950s, when the studio was given permission to remake, reboot, and reimagine many of the classic universal horror characters uh, for a more sophisticated and adult audience. And logically this kicked off with what had been Universal's most profitable film in Frankenstein. Uh, not only was Hammer's The Curse of Frankenstein in 1957 its first true venture into the new era of horror, it was also the first color motion picture that the studio produced. And the film starred uh, Peter Cushing as Victor Frankenstein uh, with Christopher Lee who played the creature. And would go on to be a worldwide success that led to several sequels, as well as the classic and some would say quintessential portrayal of Dracula uh, by Christopher Lee in 1958. And being in color and geared towards a more adult audience, uh, not to mention always having very attractive and sexy and scantily clad buxom vixens uh, with ample amounts of cleavage and uh, sexuality... Uh, This was the first time that a horror movie had truly presented blood and gore and guts on such a visceral level. Uh, The blood in the Hammer films always seems to jump out at you amidst the often darkened backdrops. And the blood still jumps out from those old Hammer films just as much today in 2021 as they did back then. Uh, But these were still sophisticated because they were British after all. And this was still the 1950s, uh, but never before had films, and particularly horror films, uh, been created with such attention to detail in terms of scenery and costumes and truly capturing the essence of the classic gothic horror novel or the historical settings of the 18th century. And both the Hammer, uh, Frankenstein, and Dracula films uh, were largely uh, successful and both would go on to have several sequels spanning uh, the next decade. Uh, and the amazing actors and good friends Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee would go on to make many films together over the years, as their chemistry was undeniable, and they would sometimes take turns with one playing the hero while the other might play the villain. And from 1957 to 1974, uh, there were seven Hammer films centered around Frankenstein, and from 58 to 73, there were eight films centered around Dracula. And due to the worldwide success of these new color reinventions with their attention to detail, wonderful performances, and more adult approach to the themes, uh, Universal gave Hammer free reign to play in their sandbox of monsters as they wanted. Uh, this led to the Hammer remake of The Mummy in 1959, also starring Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Uh, The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1960, The Curse of the Werewolf in 1961, and The Phantom of the Opera in 1962. Uh, But Hammer also ventured out with many successful original creations and now classic horror films. Uh, Some of the most successful or memorable titles uh, which include The Gorgon from 1964, Plague of the Zombies and The Reptile, both from 1966, One Million Years B.C. from 1966 and starring the vivacious Raquel Welch, The Devil Rides Out from 1968, and many, many others, uh, some of which were better produced and more memorable, uh, but all of which are fun and now considered classic films of the genre and just overall well-made motion pictures. And also to be mentioned here is the uh, British film company Amicus Productions, uh, which were active uh, from 1962 to, six, uh, to 1977. Excuse me. And because they made horror films in a similar style, and because several of them also starred either Peter Cushing or Christopher Lee or both, uh, the Amicus Productions, uh, while they too had some mild success, uh, such as with the House That Dripped Blood in 1970 or Tales from the Crypt in 1972, uh, they had nowhere near the output or production values of the Hammer films, uh, nor such a wide array of memorable sets, costumes, characters, makeup, and performances. And there's no denying the cult following of the Hammer films, uh, nor the fact that Hammer pretty much ruled horror cinema for a large part during the 1960s. However, uh, just as with the Universal Monsters of the 1930s and 40s, eventually audiences got fatigued from oversaturation and seeing the same monsters over and over again, no matter how inventive some of the films might have been uh, with their uh, resurrections of these characters. Uh, Just as the, the generation that grew up on Universal Monsters grew up and moved on or grew up and moved on to Hammer films, so too did the Hammer generation of moviegoers grow up and move on or hunger for something new and the 1960s counterculture got wilder and wilder and the genre of horror was slowly but surely evolving and branching out uh, beyond the gothic landscapes and haunted mansions of the 1800s and iconic horror characters uh, that had by this point seen dozens and dozens of sequels and adaptations uh, but thankfully uh, after a couple of decade long hiatus following the short-lived hammer House of Horror's television anthology series in the 1980s, Hammer has again started making sophisticated horror films in the early 2000s, and are alive and kicking in the 21st century. And no serious investigation and analysis of horror in the 20th century would have been complete without at least uh, touching upon the creativity and impact of the Hammer horror films of the 50s and 60s. For me, in terms of cinema, Christopher Lee is hands down the best Dracula. and He's just an all-around badass human being in general. Uh, with several iconic film roles and accomplishments under his belt. Uh, Hammer Horror is a classic staple of the mid-20th century, with dozens of movies which are still sure to thrill modern audiences. Now, please excuse me, ladies and gentlemen. We've been focusing on a couple key things here in the past ten minutes or so. And that was primarily the influence and significance of the Universal Monsters and Hammer Horror movies from the 1930s to the 1970s. And needless to say, as we were focusing solely on these two film companies, we left a whole, whole lot out uh, between the decades of the 1930s to the 70s. Uh, So we're going to take a step back again into the early and middle 20th century and touch upon some of the other important steps and movements in the evolution of the horror novel, as well as horror films and television. And there's still a lot to cover on today's episode, so if you haven't yet, and if you find yourself in a position in the mood, I hope you'll sit back, relax, crack open a beer, and follow me as we continue to trek down the rabbit hole of history in regards to horror and the supernatural. And something uh, I would be in error not to cover, cover here, in some capacity, in its relationship to horror and the human psyche, and the mass consciousness and its influence on horror fiction, uh, would be the events of World War I and World War II. And I'm not going to go into uh, any real depth here uh, in talking about these topics. Uh, but I, just to mention, I also covered the Inquisitions and the Black Death in the last episode and how it helped to shape the genre of supernatural horror and fiction. Uh, so, too, uh are the, some of the key elements of the 20th century uh, that must be considered when we are seriously trying to examine the evolution of horror fiction on a mass scale, uh, on a psychological level, and how this interplays with entertainment and pop culture in general. And it's not my intention to cheapen these events, uh, but I'm mainly going to deal with them in terms of time frames and statistics. And let all of you, those, uh, all of you listening out there today uh, draw your own conclusions on how the following events helped to shape the landscape of modern horror. Now, World War I lasted from 1914 to 1918, and there were an estimated 20 million military and civilian deaths, uh, with another 20 million severely wounded or mutilated. Uh, our first so-called modern war with implements of death and destruction never before seen or used in war, uh, nor a war on such a mass scale. The events of World War I lasted four years, uh, killed 20 million, severely injured another 20 million, many of which likely went on to die from these in- injuries. Uh, and then <clears throat> we have to take a, a brief pit stop here. And it was the end of the war in 1918 that the deadly Spanish flu outbreak took place. Uh, which was greatly proliferated and spread by millions of soldiers who were returning home from the war. And after a a short couple of years, the Spanish flu is estimated to have infected some 500 million people while killing 50 million people. And this is something to keep in mind when we think about the rates of COVID-19 in the year 2020 and 21. Uh, The population level on the planet uh, in the year 1918 was only about 20% of what it is today in in 2021. In 1918, the population level was roughly 1.5 billion, while today it's roughly 7.5 billion. So I can't help but to see that uh, with the supposed 3.5 million global deaths from COVID so far against a population of 7.5 billion uh, when compared to the 50 million deaths of the Spanish flu uh, when set up against a total global population of 1.5 billion. I can't help but to wonder uh, why we've taken such drastic measures And such drastic political agendas and media hype and pharmaceutical involvement uh, surrounding the COVID-19 virus and the supposed need for mass vaccination of 80% of the population. And I'm not trying to get off track here or to make light of COVID-19 or not take it seriously. But in order to compare it to Spanish flu, uh, especially in terms of total population levels, COVID would literally have to infect and kill about 100 times more people. To even compare to the Spanish flu. Uh, not to mention how far technology and science and medicine and hospital care has come in the past 100 years in order to take care of those who get sick. <clears throat> but I'm sorry for that little divergent path in the conversation. Uh, because the only point I wanted to make here was uh, how we had some 20 million plus people dying in World War I. Which was then immediately followed by another 50 million dying due to the Spanish flu uh, of 1918. In a period of about five years, we had nearly 100 million people dying due to war and a fucking virus, uh, while another 20 million were severely maimed and injured, and another 500 million infected. And moving forward a few decades, we have World War II, and again with those crazy Germans and their influence on the notion of horror. World War II lasted from 1939 to 1945, with an estimated 75 million deaths. Uh, which included military, civilian, and of course somewhere between 6 to 11 million Jews, and what Hitler called his final solution. And I'm going to take a brief moan here again to step away into a totally different topic, uh, but I wanted to speak out today on any uh, Holocaust deniers out there. And Personally, I see you in the same uh, way that I see people who are promoting flat earth right now. I am totally against Zionism, and I don't trust Israel at all. Uh, But when we're dealing with wars in which bombings are happening on a daily basis and obviously people are being killed or thrown into concentration camps, I have no question uh, in my mind at all that millions of people died while millions more were severely injured or mutilated. If it was 1 million Jews who died or 6 million or 11 million, I'm not really sure what Holocaust denial is trying to prove or insinuate. And unfortunately, it's easy for me to believe that humanity is as murderous and destructive and cruel as to state that 70 million people died during World War II, more so than it is for me to say that it's all a hoax. And we should question everything. And I absolutely do question Zionism and Hitler's rise to power and his involvement. And I'm sure the actual numbers of deaths from all this is not exact science. Uh, But to deny the Holocaust is very counterproductive to whatever scenarios you're trying to convey or prove. It's like saying that uh, the nuclear bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were holograms and that the estimated 300,000 Japanese people who died were all crisis actors. But again, I'm sorry for getting off topic with all this because that's not what we're talking about today. But I felt I needed to take a brief moment to mention a few things. Of course, my opinion. That's all it is. Take it or leave it. Uh, Again, I'm sorry for getting off topic, my main point here is to state in regards to history and evolution of the supernatural horror fiction and horror novel and horror cinema, in the years between 1914 to 1945, in 30 years, due to World War I, the Spanish Flu, and World War II, we have an estimated death toll of some 150 million people, with another 800 million uh, being infected or severely wounded. And that's against a a total global population level that was only 25% of what it is today. Uh, The only thing that this time period of 1914 to 1945 can be compared to is the bubonic plague and Black Death of 1346 to 1353, uh, which killed anywhere from 100 million to 200 million people. And I'm not trying to be dark or gruesome or conspiratorial here. And I realized this went into some morbid ideas and facts and statistics, Uh, but the main point of this little segment was to narrate how all of these events I just mentioned contributed to horror literature, horror films, horror escapism, and the role this has all played on the mass human psyche and mass consciousness of civilization at large. But now we leave the atrocities of war and plague behind us uh, to get back into the fun stuff. Uh, So let's get down to a brief run-through of some of the key highlights of the 1930s uh, through the 1970s that we haven't already mentioned in previous segments today, uh, which are all related to the evolution of horror fiction. In 1932, Charles Adams made his first appearance in The New Yorker with the iconic group of characters in The Adams Family. Uh, he quickly became a regular, and by 1935, his cartoons had evolved into his immediately recognizable style. His darkly comedic visions of death and the macabre lasted until 1989 and spawned the Adams Family television show in the 1960s with a theme song that no one could ever forget, as well as several full-length films in recent years, as well as a new Wednesday Adams Netflix series, which is set to premiere sometime in 2021 or 2022. In 1933, we have a monumental event in the release of King Kong, and not not much needs to be said about King Kong, as he's a household name, Uh, but the original film would go on to make a little over $5 million at the box office in 1933 when ticket prices were only about 25 cents, and I'm not going to try and do the math there. Uh, But needless to say, $5 million in 1933 was a whole lot of money for a film to make. And since 1933, there have been 11 other movies uh, featuring the savage beast, including the latest from March of 2021, where he battles Godzilla. Uh, So obviously, Kong has had a huge uh, amount of lasting staying power uh, cinematically, and surely we haven't seen the last of Kong on the big screen. Uh, Not to mention there have also been several series of cartoons and comic books uh, centered around this tragic anti-hero. The next major event to be discussed today comes the infamous 1938 radio broadcast of War of the Worlds on October 30th, as narrated by Orson Welles. And of course, most of us know this story as how the broadcast is said to have caused mass panic and hysteria, uh, though it's debatable just how wide-reaching the effects of this broadcast actually were at the time. Uh, It did indeed cause many panic calls to the local police stations, as well as several police uh, personnel crashing into the CBS studios in order to stop the broadcast from reaching any more people who were not aware that it was all just a play led by actors and and a work of fiction. Uh, And while it wasn't intended to be a prank or a practical joke, uh, we can surely state that the October 30th, 1938 broadcast of War of the Worlds is one of the greatest hoaxes and pranks of all time. I've got the original recording on vinyl, and it's definitely one of those special treats that you want to pull out uh, and listen to every Halloween night. And, of course, the response to the broadcast uh, superseded and undoubtedly helped to fuel the UFO mania uh, that would go on to grip the nation starting in the late 1940s and throughout the course of the next several decades. It was then in 1939. uh, The Arkham House Publishing Company is founded by August Derleth and Donald Wandery. Uh, admirers of Lovecraft's work, uh, they were determined to ensure it survived both at the author and Weird Tales. And Derleth and other authors such as Robert Block and Robert E. Howard uh, began to utilize the mythos in their own stories with uh, some mixed success. Now, needless to say, Arkham House helped to propel the legacy of Lovecraft to future decades and audiences. And Arkham House would also be uh, the title inspiration for the dreaded Arkham Asylum. In the mythos of the DC Comics a character Batman, uh, which is where they place the most powerful and insane criminals, uh, are sent to Arkham Asylum to be locked up. And an interesting, uh, interesting side note here: uh, speaking of DC Comics, uh, it was the very first DC comic uh, book hero. It wasn't Superman or Batman, as some might believe. It was a serialized character that only had a small handful of appearances in the long history of DC comic books. And that is with the private investigator and occult detective known as Dr. Occult, which first appeared in 1935. And of course, we'd later get Dr. Strange in the 60s, as well as the Spectre and Phantom Stranger and many other characters that dealt with the occult and supernatural and mystical uh, would come along. Uh, But it is very notable, the very first DC uh, comic book superhero. Uh, Before the big two characters of Batman and Superman came along in 1935 uh, with Dr. Occult. And we've touched upon and we'll touch upon again in these episodes how occult beliefs and uh, superstitions uh, have played a prominent role uh, in concepts of spirit communication and prophecy and magic uh, have played into the understanding of horror and the unknown uh, in our uh, horror fiction Uh, Even though all of these concepts, I just mentioned the occult, um, the superstitious, the supernatural and magic, uh, they've always existed in storytelling, uh, going back to the very first human civilizations. But getting back on topic, likewise, it was from 1939 to 1945, the British Board of Film Censors banned the screening of horror films, both local and imported, uh, for the duration on the grounds that they would affect morale during the war. And the movies they did let through were generally uh, edited out of all recognition. Uh, While some Americans had similar sentiments, for instance, Variety regarded The Wolfman as dubious entertainment at this particular time, the public proved them wrong with huge box office receipts. This period of horror film censorship would sprout up again and again in the next decade. Uh, Then The next time it would be geared more towards the banning of certain comic books. And throughout the 1940s, after the popular radio plays of the 1930s, often incorporating horror motifs or at least dark and mysterious heroes such as the popular The Shadow, uh, horror on radio came into its own in this decade. examples were programs such as Dimension X, Inner Sanctum, I Love a Mystery, and Suspense. Uh, By 1950, however, the more visual mediums were taking precedence, and the programs fell by the wayside. Individual shows can be still be found in later years, uh, for example, CBS Mystery Theater, uh, but they are few and far between. It was then in 1942 that Ray Bradbury published The Candle, which was his first short story. It appeared in Weird Tales magazine, and he would go on to write The Martian Chronicles in 1951, Uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes in 1963. Other achievements include the fascist future of Fahrenheit 451 in 1953, and his collections of poetically macabre short stories such as The October Country from 1956. And the literary impact of Ray Bradbury would inspire countless new writers in the coming decades, and reverberations of his work can still be felt well into the 21st century. It was then in 1949 that uh, became a magic year for horror on television. Uh, when everybody decided to convert their radio series into a more visual medium. Uh, Lights Out had started as a series of specials in 1946 and became a regular series. Uh, An appointment with fear and suspense also made the transition. A less successful show of 1949 was starring Boris Karloff, uh, which turned into Mystery Theater starring Boris Karloff, and finally found a wider wider audience uh, as the series called Thriller. Another keynote from 1949 that's also worth mentioning uh, comes in the publication of one of the most successful portraits of a futuristic totalitarian regime as has ever been presented in George Orwell's classic and seminal work, 1984. And while some people might not think that the book 1984 uh, should be mentioned when discussing horror literature, I think the overall themes of paranoia, paranoia, and personal identity, and the loss of personal identity as well as the totalitarian depiction of big brother is definitely rooted in some key themes and elements that could be considered to be of the horror genre. Uh, The only other main contender in this field of political nightmares of this era would be uh, Aldous Huxley's brave new world uh, from 1932. Uh, Many other works of similar nature have been, Imitated and published over the decades since, Uh, but Brave New World and 1984 uh, were the first and still the best works of this breed of psychological atrocity and totalitarian dictatorship and mass media mind control on a societal level. And as we're now uh, starting to put the decade of the 1940s behind us, uh, 1947 would prove to be a very notable year for horror as this was the year that William Gaines takes over his father's publishing business and changes its name from educational comics to entertaining comics, otherwise known as the classic series of E.C. Comics. As well as uh, sci-fi and action titles, uh, they would also produce America's first and most famous horror comics, uh, the likes of Tales from the Crypt, Haunt of Fear, and Vault of Horror. E.C. became a cult sensation, Until 1954, that is, uh, when Dr. Frederick Wertham's infamous The Seduction of the Innocents, uh, the influence of comic books on today's youth, saw print. And the backlash was incredible. EC was brought under the scrutiny of the U.S. uh, Senate Subcommittee, and business went downhill fast. Mad Magazine remains the only survivor of that publishing house. And yes, that's right, in case you didn't know, uh, Mad Magazine came out of the heritage of the EC line of horror comic books. Uh, though most of the titles, such as Tales from the Crypt, have been reprinted several times over the decades in various collected editions. And in regard to the Seduction of the Innocents uh, book written by Frederick Wirtman, uh, William Gaines of EC Comics is on record as stating, uh, in a nationally televised court case, uh, he quoted, it would, just, it would be just as difficult to explain the harmless thrill of a horror story to Dr. Wortham as it would to be to explain the sublimeness of love to a frigid old maid. Tributes to the EC tradition include the excellent Tales from the Crypt television series from the 1990s, as well as the movie Creep Show, uh, brought in collaboration by George Romero and Stephen King in 1982. Uh, the streaming horror channel Shudder has also recently uh, started a very cool Creep Show anthology TV series uh, that is heavily influenced by the old EC comic books. And to clarify, EC wasn't the only company uh, making horror comic books in the 1950s were the only ones who suffered from the censorship of the comics code authority. Uh, Yet it was EC who set the bar and standard for other horror comic books that were imitate uh, the style in the mid to late 1950s. Other publishers of horror comic books in the 50s included the classic Harvey Horrors and Fawcett uh, Publications, Charlton Comics, uh, Atlas Comics, and several other companies whose titles are still uh, very much sought after by today's collectors. And this really goes hand-in-hand with the uh, McCarthyism of the era and the notion that communist infiltrators were uh, manipulating Hollywood and the entertainment industry and the mass blacklisting of everyone who might have uh, any communist sympathies or subversive viewpoints. Uh, There was a witch-hunt of censorship uh, towards horror, as well as communism during this period. And sadly, here we are some 70 goddamn years later, And we're still hearing about the so-called Red Scare of communism and socialism and the hidden enemies within our own society. Uh, The witch hunt continues on both sides of the political aisle. Uh, But needless to say, EC Comics, as well as many other publishers in the 1950s, uh, were putting out some amazing work during this period. And we can only wonder what might have happened had they not been censored from publishing their titles. And you can't help but see some of the irony in the fact that most of the EC horror and sci-fi tales were tales of morality in which many instances the true villain of the tale gets the punishment they might deserve for their crimes. Yet E.C. was being accused of being immoral because of its bloody and gruesome artwork, primarily. That was why they were being censored. And I've already mentioned uh, this a couple times before in this episode, in the last episode, Uh, but it's also a little ironic that the 1750s brought the public outcry and censorship of the so-called graveyard poets uh, of the day, Uh, while the 1850s brought the public outcry and censorship of the Penny Dreadfuls, And then the 1950s brought the public outcry and censorship of EC Comics. And moving right along here, dear listeners, we're now entering the 1950s, which means we're a little bit past the halfway point of today's episode of Conspiraporn, of which you are listening to part three of a four-part series covering roughly 6,000 B.C. to 2021 A.D., Uh, So I hope you'll check out the first two parts of this series if you haven't already, and we'll be sure to listen to part four when it comes out in the next week or two. And thanks to those handful of people out there who find this subject matter interesting enough to listen uh, to me ramble on about it for hours at a time. Uh, now we've already covered a huge influence uh, we've already covered a huge influence in the 1950s, with, which would occur with the publication of EC Comics and other independent comic publishers of the day. And we also have previously discussed the Hammer films and their influence in the 1950s, and there is much, much more to cover in the 1950s. So uh, this was the first decade to really crank out mass amounts of horror and science fiction as the economy was on track again and televisions were becoming more readily available to the mass public and Hollywood was churning out movies full steam at this point. Uh, the 1950s was really the birth of mass-produced film and television and radio and books and so much more, coinciding with the steady incline of the so-called baby boom generation. And the baby boom generation uh, is considered to be those born from 1945 Uh, right after world war ii all the way to 1965 Uh, so right now we're discussing the 1950s which was really um, right smack dab in the middle of what was known as the baby boom Uh, as well as a greater access and means for spending money on entertainment or technological advancement such as the home television set and the main action in this decade in the cinema at least uh, was science fiction Uh, but most of it fits snugly uh, within this assembly. It hadn't taken long after World War II for another conflict to appear, and these films were a telling indication of Cold War tension, and by the way of the rush of UFO sightings that began in earnest in 1947 uh, with the famous alleged UFO crash in Roswell, New Mexico. And if you're interested in further exploring the UFO agenda, uh, please take a look back and listen to episode 6 of the Conspiraporn podcast, which was uh, an hour of detailed discussion involving the history of UFO reports and sightings uh, from the 19th century to the 21st century. Anyway, in a decade in which anxiety, paranoia, and complacency marched hand in hand, the themes were internal invasion, corruption, and paranoid fantasies. The classic invaders from Mars... In 1953. And it came from outer space. Also 1953. Are both early examples of this. Uh, Likewise it was the classic version of The Thing. uh, Which presented the very first depiction of an alien creature from another planet on film. And of course The Thing would go on to be remade some 30 years later by uh, John Carpenter. In his phenomenal version. And then in 1956. uh, Brought us Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Which helped to further breed the fear and paranoia of the other Uh, or being suspicious of our own neighbors turning into a pod person from another world. Uh, Only in War of the Worlds 1953 and Earth vs. the Flying Saucers in 1956 were large-scale invasions portrayed, as it was much more budget-friendly to present more isolated or personal accounts of alien encounters and UFO involvement, uh, such as The Thing, Invaders from Mars, and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, among many others. Uh, Naturally enough, post-apocalyptic, uh, post-Holocaust uh, movies started to appear. And it was also the decade of the monster movie, giant ants, uh, silly robots, hairy beasts, and mixtures of the two, uh, Neanderthal men, uh, lizard skin girl-lusting critters, and on and on. And as stated before, The Creature from Black Lagoon from 1954 is perhaps the best example of science gone wrong. Uh, science fiction was huge in the 1950s, as were movies of alien visitors, UFOs, Uh, Science gone wrong, atomic monsters, nuclear fallout, irradiated giant bugs, and Mother Nature becoming mutated and rising up against humanity in revenge. And of course, it's in the 1950s, uh, 1954 to be exact, uh, that Japan would have its own social commentary horror movie following the atomic bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, in which they would present Godzilla, the king of the monsters, uh, to the world on the big screen. And, of course, Godzilla, uh, much like its American counterpart of King Kong, uh, would go on to become a huge success and create a massive franchise of fandom. Since 1954, there have been at least 30 sequels and remakes and films, as well as comic books uh, and merchandising and a huge amount of memorabilia and collectibles uh, featuring both Godzilla and King Kong. And Godzilla is undoubtedly the most popular and well-known of these Atomic Age monsters that, along with aliens from uh, other planets and UFOs, uh, dominated most of the science fiction and horror movies of the 1950s, uh, at least on the big screen. And tying uh, right along with this theme of alien possession and nature gone wrong, uh, The Day of the Trifids is also published in 1951, uh, which is a post-apocalyptic novel by English science fiction author John Wyndham. Uh, After most people in the world were blinded by an apparent meteor shower, an aggressive species of plants starts killing people. And John Wyndham is also known for writing the book The Midwich Cuckoos in 1957, uh, which would go on to be adapted in two separate film versions uh, titled Village of the Damned in 1960, as well as 1995, uh, the later version of which was again directed by John Carpenter. And again, The Village of the Damned, we have Paranoia of the Other, Uh, And the alien infiltrator that seeks to assimilate the population by living among us as our friends, family, and neighbors. And all of these things tie heavily into the attitude and atmosphere of McCarthyism that was ripe in the 1950s. Uh, The other, the secret invaders that live among us and seek to take over our neighborhoods and our country with their alien ideas and customs. It was just a general feeling of paranoia and not knowing who you could trust and a lot of these feelings of alienation and mind control or not knowing who to trust was kicked off by George Orwell's book 1984 which was published in 1949 and i just want to briefly state and this is this is not a political comment uh, but we can feel the reverberations of the pod people of mccarthyism and questioning who is infected uh, with the spore and who isn't infected with the spore uh, very prominently here in the years 2020 and 2021 uh, 2020 and 2021 has been heavily focused on who to trust and the other, and the infiltrators, and those who seek to take over our ideals of society and family, and want to infect us with either a virus or their ideology. So anyway, the 1950s was uh, largely permeated with On the big screen, alien invaders, alien infestation of your body and your mind, mad scientists, nuclear monsters that decimated entire cities, Mother Nature going crazy with giant mutant bugs, and ideas of paranoia and separation, alienation and division. But of course, even with the age of the UFO and atomic monsters and apocalyptic scenarios of all variety in full swing uh, during the 1950s, the classic monsters never really went away, and ghouls and ghosts and vampires were still lurking in the shadows, uh, which was given new life with Hammer Horror and Christopher Lee as Dracula in 1959, but the vampire mythos was turned on its head and refreshingly reinvented. Uh, with a classic work from 1954, and that would come with the literary master Richard Matheson's unforgettable book, I Am Legend. And I Am Legend would uh, set the basis for a wide variety of horror ideas of the day, including the apocalypse, uh, the invaders, science gone wrong, and the recreation of the vampires being a vast horde of humanity and an infection or a virus. Uh, I Am Legend has had three different film adaptations so far, Uh, the first and the best being 1964's The Last Man on Earth, starring Vincent Price, as well as we had The Omega Man from 1971, and I Am Legend, starring Will Smith, from uh, 2007. Needless to say, I Am Legend from 1954 is considered by many to be the first great vampire novel of the 20th century, as well as perhaps the most inventive vampire novel ever written. It perfectly captured several of the major horror and science fiction moods of the 1950s, and wrapped them up with a nice little bow, featuring classic horror monster, uh, the classic horror monster, the vampire. Uh, it wouldn't be hard to argue that I Am Legend also heavily influenced the apocalyptic zombie genre that was to start in the 1960s. Uh, now, I'd be doing a great disservice if I didn't take at least a couple minutes to talk about the literary genius and influence of Richard Matheson. And while he's perhaps best known for I Am Legend, Richard Matheson became an icon of horror and the supernatural story uh, and has influenced nearly every single writer of horror for the uh, the past 70 years. And the sheer creative output of Richard Matheson and the quality uh, of creative output during the 1950s and 60s and 70s, it's phenomenal. Uh, Not only did he write I Am Legend, uh, but also uh, dozens of short stories and books as well as a great deal of work in television and film, including The Shrinking Man in 1956, and A Stir of Echoes in 1958, as well as Hell House in 1971, uh, which is one of the greatest haunted house and ghost stories ever written. Hell House is in my top three haunted and ghost novels of all time, and Matheson is also uh, well known for What Dreams May Come in 1978, which, of course, became the film version of What Dreams May Come uh, in 1998 and starring the late, great Robin Williams. Uh, Matheson, uh, among uh, dozens of other short series and television credits, he's also known as having written 16 episodes of the classic television series, uh, which happens to be my favorite series of all time, and that is The Twilight Zone. And we'll definitely be talking about The Twilight Zone in our coverage of the 1960s. Uh, But Matheson wrote 16 episodes of the classic Twilight Zone, including some of the best-known and most beloved episodes, such as Nightmare at 20,000 Feet and Nick of Time, both starring a young pre-Star Trek William Shatner, as well as Night Call, The Invaders, and a very creepy episode, which was Little Girl Lost, among many other memorable episodes. Uh, Matheson also wrote for Star Trek... Night Gallery, Alfred Hitchcock presents and wrote the uh, classic horror movies The Devil Rides Out for Hammer Films and the Trilogy of Terror uh, anthology movie, which was first aired on television in 1975. And Richard Matheson, uh, he was the writer's writer and his impact and influence on future generations of horror fiction and the weird tale uh, cannot be overstated. And just a small side note here, uh, but I have a lot of collectibles uh, and I own uh, many thousands and thousands of books and comic books and assorted cool items Uh, but i only have a small handful of autographs and i'm glad to say that uh richard matheson is among one of my uh, rarest autographs and that comes with a signed paperback edition of the book of short stories uh, shock part two from 1979 i don't really want many autographs in my collection uh, but richard matheson was definitely one that i wanted to obtain so i'm happy that i found one And speaking of the first film adaptation of I Am Legend, which was The Last Man on Earth with a memorable performance by Vincent Price, it was 1953 that Vincent Price would have his first breakout horror performance and role with The House of Wax. And of course, we know that Vincent Price, like Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and a very small handful of others, uh, make up what would become horror royalty in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. Uh, Vincent Price was an icon of the genre. Uh, From many Poe adaptations from the likes of House of Usher, Pit and the Pendulum, Mask of the Red Death, and The Raven, uh, to classics like House on Haunted Hill and The Tingler, to Michael Jackson's Thriller in the 1980s, and his final film role in 1990, which was in Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands. Uh, Price was among a very small handful of horror royalty that started sprouting up during the 50s and 60s. And just a note that several of the Movies I just mentioned also had the involvement of director William Castle, uh, who became known for his gimmicky marketing campaigns, such as electrifying the seats during the Tingler movie, uh, to offering life insurance policies to people who might die of fright uh, during the movie Macabre, to a giant and inflatable glowing skeleton to be floated above movie audiences at the end of House on a Haunted Hill, uh, to pausing the film. Near the end of the movie to allow a 45-second break for audience members who might be faint of heart uh, to exit the theater before the film's terrifying climax. And with many others including Smell-O-Vision, William Castle uh, offered a certain level of audience participation, almost daring them to watch the movie uh, without using the gimmick of 3D glasses. And Castle was inventive with his promotional angles, though most people would consider it schlock theater. It's cool schlack theater, nonetheless, and several of his films starred Vincent Price. And back to the books. Uh, 1954 brought us Lord of the Flies by William Golding, and proceed. uh, he went on to win the Nobel Prize for Literature, and pressing and shocking with the veneer of civilization slipping away from a group of shipwrecked children. Golding also had several great works, including the follow-up to Lord of the Flies, uh, which was a prehistoric sci-fi tale uh, that also had an ample dose of social commentary, and that was called The Inheritors. Uh, I love that book, The Inheritors. Uh, So we definitely can't leave out William Golding when uh, making a stop along the path and evolution of the horror novel and progression of the genre into new primal and chaotic territories. Uh, 1957 brought us the beautiful German expressionist film The Seventh Seal, uh, which is Ingmar Bergman's classic about a knight, brilliantly played by Max von Sydow, uh, playing chess with death during the plague, inspired by paintings in the churches of uh, Bergman's childhood. It's a powerful and memorable film, and an exceptional piece of cinema. And of course, when thinking about The Seventh Seal, uh, we can't help but to see the classic scene of uh, the knight playing chess with death on the beach, or forget the fact that Death would later on uh, go on to play bass for Wild Stallions on his many time-traveling adventures with Bill and Ted. And 1957, brought us a morbid reality and the personification of the American serial killer when Wisconsin farmer Ed Gein is arrested on suspicion of the murder of one uh, Bernice Warden. And his farmhouse is duly checked and the remains of approximately 15 women were found in various small pieces, uh, dominated by his mother... Uh, his uh, Her death uh, led him to exhume and dissect corpses, uh, fashioning crude clothing from their skin. Uh, whilst talking candidly about his cannibalism and desecration, he was indignant about the charge uh, that he should be accused of theft as well. And the terrible and bizarre case of Ed Gain would uh, really be the first among the newly formed monster of the pop culture serial killer and the media sensation serial killer. And not only a serial killer, but a fucking fiend straight out of an EC comic book. And even more brutal and morbid than that. And Ed Gein uh, wasn't the first, of course. We had Jack the Ripper and H.H. H. Holmes from the late 19th century. But Ed Gein certainly became legendary when the term based on a true story uh, became synonymous with Ed Gein. By being the inspiration behind both the classic film Psycho as well as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And we'll definitely be talking more about Psycho and Texas Chainsaw Massacre a little later on when we tackle the 1960s and 70s. Needless to say, Ed Gain was an American nightmare in real life, and certainly influenced the emerging serial killer obsession in pop culture, as well as a more psychological approach of confronting the insanity within a mass killer, and how they can look just like us. They're our neighbors and co-workers, and they live amongst us, and they seem to be as normal as everybody else. But like Jekyll and Hyde, they have a dark and shadowed side, wicked and evil and vile, and that they hide perfectly from the rest of the world. Real-life monsters, which in turn also brought forward uh, more realism when writing or producing horror fiction, and we'll definitely be digging deeper into the popularity of the serial killer culture uh, before we're finished with this four-part podcast series on conspiraporn. But on a much lighter note... Uh, 1950 brought us the magazine Famous Monsters of Filmland. First appeared, edited by the ever-punning Forrest J. Ackerman, and influenced an incredible uh, number of later horror stars. It lasted 190 issues under Ackerman's reign, and uh, those issues are still much sought-after collectibles to this day. Uh, This also helped to influence and inspire a large number of imitators and future horror magazines over the years. Uh, Fangoria being one of the most well known and long enduring among them, uh Famous Monsters of Filmland came at a perfect time uh as horror and science fiction were the primary movers on radio, television, and in theaters at this time, as well as ever blossoming and evolving uh the ever blossoming and evolving horror novel. And without the success of Famous Monsters of Filmland, there would have been no creepy or eerie magazines, nor would Vampirella have been born in the 1960s. Famous Monsters of Filmland was an all-ages look uh, behind the scenes of horror movies and books and makeup and special effects, which would go on to influence uh, a huge variety of makeup artists uh, over the coming decades. Uh, 1959... Uh, The first true American ghost novel appeared in the 20th century, tinged with a psychological horror and paranoia and neurosis and lingering questions that come long after you've finished the last page, and that comes with Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, uh, which is one of the most critically respected genre novels of the past 75 years and has influenced just about every other horror writer since then, really. And of course, uh, Netflix later made a popular and well-received Haunting of Hill House series a couple years ago, though the Netflix series has pretty much nothing to do with the original book, uh, aside from a few subtle winks and references to the source material. Other novels, such as We Have Always Lived in a Castle in 1962, and various short stories such as The Summer People, uh, form a body of work both quiet and profoundly disturbing by Shirley Jackson. And, of course, Shirley Jackson received uh, much notoriety several years earlier from her classic 1948 short story, The Lottery, uh, which appeared in the New Yorker magazine. And I mentioned uh, earlier uh, that Richard Matheson's uh, 1971 book, Hell House is in my top three haunted house books, uh, so too is Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House in my top three haunted house books or ghost stories. And jumping ahead, in case you want to know, uh, but number three on my list of three favorite uh, haunted house stories would be 1979's Ghost Story, uh, written by Peter Straub. Uh, so Haunting of Hill House in 1959 by Shirley Jackson, Hell House by Richard Matheson in 1971, and Ghost Story by Peter Straub in 1979 are my three favorite haunted house and ghost stories uh, for anyone who might want to know that little factoid. And before we close the book on the 1950s, no pun intended, uh, the 50s was also the decade uh, where we really start to see the first horror and sci-fi anthology books uh, of collected short stories, as well as dozens of notable books uh, that we didn't even get a chance to get into during this segment, Uh, but among them being Childhood's End by Arthur C. uh, Clarke, iRobot by Isaac Asimov, who helped to shape the landscape of the 50s and 60s with dozens of classic and influential sci-fi works. Uh, we also had The Sirens of Titan by Kurt Vonnegut, a dozen notable sci-fi novels by Philip K. Dick and Robert A. Heinlein, uh, such uh, some terrific short story collections by Charles Beaumont, and many, many, many other books uh, that littered the horror and sci-fi pop culture generation of the 1950s. And sorry, one last thing. Uh, since I said I was going to mention it, I almost get past uh, the 1950s. Um, before we move into the 1960s, uh, I'd like to have a brief discussion on the topic of beloved horror hosts uh, that began popping up across the nation in the 1950s. And the tradition of the television horror host originates with the beautiful actress Mala Nurmi, otherwise known as Vampira who hosted the Vampira Show in 1954 and 1955 in California. And the Vampira Show featured mostly low-budget suspense films, as few horror films had yet been released for television broadcast at that time. And despite its short two-year run, the Vampire Show set the standard format for horror host programs of later years. And of course, vampire is not to be confused with the comic book character Vampirella, which didn't pop up until 1969. Uh, but the idea of a horror host or the one who introduces and ends a story and tells some dark-humored jokes along the way, uh, was also popularized by the Crypt Keeper from Tales from the Crypt, as well as the Vault Keeper and the old hag of the EC Comics of this time period. Uh, but this horror host tradition uh, was also continued at least in print by creepy and eerie magazines of the 1960s. However, it was in October 1957 that Screen Gems released... A a bundle of old universal horror movies to be syndicated on television, uh, naming the collection Shock, and they encouraged the use of hosts for the broadcast. And this is why many of the early uh, programs were called Shock Theater, and viewers loved the package, as well as the concept and the rating sword. And a Son of Shock package was released in 1958. And with the popularity of these creature feature programs centered around a horror host and syndicating horror and sci-fi movies on television sets across the country, dozens and dozens of unique horror hosts sprouted up uh, through the late 1950s into the 60s and 70s, from Morgus the Magnificent uh, to Gugliardi to Sammy Terry. Uh, who was the horror host I grew up with in the 1980s, and whose son is still performing as Sammy Terry to this day in 2021, uh, carrying a legacy of over 60 years. The iconic horror host had a significant place on television throughout the 1960s into the 1980s. And, of course, the lovely, lovely Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, uh, would come along during the 1980s and arguably become the most popular and beloved of all the horror hosts, uh, sharing in a long heritage that started with Vampira in 1954. And the 80s and 90s also brought us Joe Bob Briggs and The Last Drive-In, Sven Gulli, and Mystery Science Theater 3000. And again, this is one of those topics uh, we could spend an entire episode on, as uh, iconic characters like Sammy Terry are near and dear to my heart. But needless to say, the late 1950s brought us the horror host, who helped to frame a package of both classic as well as B-horror movies to the general public through their late night television sets. And this tradition has had many ups and downs over the decades, Uh, but the idea of the horror host is still alive today uh, in the year 2021, and it will be alive and well for years to come. And to set the tone for horror and the 1960s in general, it kicks off in full gear with the film release of Psycho by Alfred Hitchcock, uh, based on the book by Robert Bloch which had been released the year before. And of course, Hitchcock was a larger-than-life figure who gained critical acclaim and a reputation with the film's Rear Window and Vertigo, as well as Dial M for Murder in the 1950s, but Psycho would go to raise the bar on the horror film, as well as the focus on the musical score of the horror film in order to enhance the experience, and would set a disturbing precedent in the fact that Psycho was inspired, at least in part, by the grizzly serial killer Ed Gein from just a few years before. The iconic character of Norman Bates uh, was really the first cinematic serial killer, as well as to be the first to have such deep-rooted psychological issues of schizophrenia and insanity. And without Norman Bates, uh, who is a tragic figure when you really think about it, uh, there probably wouldn't have been a Hannibal Lecter or any number of serial killer antagonists that have sprouted up time and time again in literature and film over the past five decades. All in all, there were four films starring Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates, as well as a remake in the late 1990s and a uh, fairly popular television series, Bates Motel, which ran just a few years ago. And along with Ed Gein, uh, we also have a hint of the first American serial killer, H.H. Holmes, uh, with the Bates Motel uh, being full of hidden viewing panels and hidden passageways and the idea of a trap being set and the set piece of the Bates Motel Hell itself being a character in the story. And a tiny little side note here is that the same year, the controversial film Peeping Tom uh, was also released uh, in England, uh, which caused much concern and uneasiness among the viewing public due to uh, what was considered a nasty look at the innocuous young man who takes voyeurism to disturbing new links. Psycho and Peeping Tom both presented a neurosis, or a mental perversion, as being the villain of the movie. Uh, But the point I'm trying to make here is that the 60s kicked off with Hitchcock and Psycho and Norman Bates. And that would almost be a perfect analogy of how the 60s themselves ended up uh, with a decade of assassinations and war and riots and intense public unrest. Uh, Psycho brought the true crime and based on a shocking true story element to horror cinema and has never looked back. And of course, Hitchcock, a master of the genre, of Psychological Suspense and Terror, also hosted the anthology series Alfred Hitchcock Presents in the late 1950s and early 1960s, and would then go on to direct The Birds in 1963, which is considered another classic. And on the subject of anthology series, it was in 1959 to 1964 that brought us one of the greatest and most imaginative and influential television series of all time, with the classic Twilight Zone ...hosted by the enigmatic Rod Serling. And ladies and gentlemen, The Twilight Zone is my favorite series of all time. And we could just talk about The Twilight Zone for an entire episode, and maybe sometime we'll do just that. uh, Because there's a dozen different angles in which you could approach and talk about the significance and uh, genius that was Rod Serling... ...and The Twilight Zone, as well as its legacy. Uh, But there really isn't much that compares to the sheer imagination and creativity and social commentary and twist endings... Of the original Twilight Zone series, which ran for 156 episodes. And of course this was followed by the divisive series Night Gallery from 1969 to 1973 that didn't quite have the same magic as the Twilight Zone uh, hosted by Rod Serling, uh, but was still a cool and unique series that had some great episodes. Uh, Tales from the Unexpected followed suit in 1960, as well as Thriller with Boris Karloff, also from 1960. And then in 1963 we had The Outer Limits, Uh, And this all followed on the success of Alfred Hitchcock's uh, Presents, as well as The Twilight Zone. Now, for me, and many others, uh, the original Twilight Zone is the ultimate television show. And if not considered the best, then it's uh, definitely among the top five or ten of all time. And this would be said for a variety of reasons, from the writing, to the directing, to the acting, to the social commentary, the special effects, and the unpredictable endings. Pound for pound, and episode for episode, Twilight Zone is a superb level of genius, and creativity, and has so many great episodes, and has uh, such a wide appeal, uh, not just for fans of science fiction and horror and the weird. Uh, So many episodes uh, were memorable to so many people. And of course, the huge amount of syndication that the Twilight Zone has had over the decades certainly helped cement its legacy. The Twilight Zone has been playing constantly in syndication since about the time it was canceled, and continues with annual marathons uh, during certain holidays. Uh, Twilight Zone uh, became not only ingrained in the human psyche, but also an American tradition. Excuse me. And if you, like I have, uh, have already watched all 156 episodes of the original series on more than one occasion, I would recommend the book The Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Zecree, which is a little behind-the-scenes look at the making and production notes of all 156 episodes. And I'll be honest, uh, while the resurgence in the 1980s uh, was interesting uh, with Twilight Zone magazine, and the Twilight Zone the movie in uh, 1983, and five seasons of a revivaled Twilight Zone uh, TV series that started in 1985, Twilight Zone never really recaptured the magic of the original series. And I really tried to like the Jordan Peele-hosted Twilight Zone from CBS All Access, which ran for a couple uh, seasons recently. Uh, But aside from a small handful of pretty good episodes and some interesting episodes, and uh, even a kind of cool CGI Rod Serling appearance... In the final episode of Season 1, in which we came to find out that Serling had been haunting every episode of the new TV series as the mysterious Blurry Man, the latest incarnation just felt a little forced. And if you have watched it in black and white format, which was an option, it comes comes off a little more successfully, but overall it just seemed to be pushing the quote-unquote woke narrative and lacked the subtlety and nuance of the original series. And whatever the case, the original Twilight Zone series has arguably become a part of the very fabric of society and reality itself. And there's something about it being filmed in black and white that only gives strength to the surreal quality of films such as Psycho or television programs such as The Twilight Zone. And just to give the Hammer horror films a run for their money in the 1960s, horror auteur Roger Corman... "...shoots the first of his adaptations of Poe, which included House of Usher, starring Vincent Price, and was written for the screen by Richard Matheson in 1960, while The Pit and the Pendulum was released in 1961, The Premature Burial, also from 61, The Raven in 1963, The Mask of the Red Death in 64, among others. Uh, The cult figure was the master of the cheap budget and the quick shoot." Uh, but was also responsible for discovering the talents of Francis Ford Coppola, Joe Dante, and Martin Scorsese. Uh, Corman had already directed such delights as Attack of the Crab Monsters in 1957 and the original Little Shop of Horrors in 1960. Uh, Corman was also responsible for one of the my favorite horror films from this era, uh, which was Bucket of Blood in 1959, and starring the legendary actor Dick Miller who appeared in over 180 films during his long-established career. And Corman would go on to direct, produce, or appear as an actor in hundreds of films and become an icon uh, of the creation of filming a B-movie on a tight budget. 1963 brought us the cult classic film Dementia 13, uh, which was the first real movie made by director Francis Ford Coppola. And of course, Coppola would go on to write and direct the classic Godfather series of films, as well as Apocalypse Now and the reimagining of Dracula with Gary Oldman in the 1992 version. And Francis Ford Coppola always kept his toe dipped in the water of horror movies, even if just as an executive producer, uh, such as he was on the popular Jeepers Creepers parts one and two uh, from the early 2000s. And in 1963 out, it was on November 22nd, 1963, uh, that we have the public assassination and execution of President John F. Kennedy. And the unforgettable Kennedy assassination isn't something we need, need to dwell on here. Uh, but there can be no, no denying the impact this had on the American psyche. And to cap off the strange surrealness of this assassination, it was Rod Serling who would go on to narrate a memorial special dedicated to Kennedy shortly after his death. And on the subject of Kennedy, Mr. Rod Serling had this to say, "Uh, "'More than a man has died. More than a gallant young president has been put to death. More than a high office of land has been assaulted. What is to be mourned now is an ideal.' What has been assassinated is a faith in ourselves. What has been murdered is a belief in our own decency, our capacity to love, our sense of order and logic and civilized decorum. To the leftist and the rightist, to the absolutists, to the men of little faith but strong hate, and all of us who have helped plant this ugly and loathsome seed that blossomed forth on a street in Dallas on last Friday. This is the only dictum we can heal now. For civilization to survive, it must remain civilized. And there is to be any hope for our children and theirs. We must never again allow violence to offer itself as an excuse for our own insecurities, our weaknesses, or our own fears. This is not an arguable doctrine for simply a better life. It is a condition for our continued existence. And a small interesting side note here also is that the Twilight Zone episode that was set to appear on the night of November 22nd, 1963 was the classic Night Call, written by Richard Matheson. But of course, the airing of that episode was postponed uh, due to continuing coverage of the president's assassination. And while certainly uh, he was the most impactful uh, assassination and death of the 60s, the 60s brought us a plethora of strange deaths and assassinations of well-known figures, from Marilyn Monroe to Bobby Kennedy to Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and several others. Uh, one hint can't help but to be haunted uh, by the footage of the Kennedy assassination, nor haunted by the fact that some 60 years later, we still have no definitive account of who or what was behind these events. And the 60s was a wild ride, in terms of the social fabric of this country. And certainly, it had many shadowy corners and a dark underbelly of corruption, conspiracy, mysterious deaths, and assassinations. And all of these events played prominently on the psyche uh, psyche of the American public and the evolution of the horror genre. Then, in 1964, the United States was brought full force into the Vietnam War. Because, of course, we just can't go very long without getting involved in another shitty little war that kills millions of soldiers and civilians on both sides of the equation. And, of course, with Kennedy, we also had the panic-leveled tension of imminent nuclear holocaust with war between Cuba and Russia and the United States. The nation was on red alert as nuclear destruction seemed a very real possibility while the nation's youth was being drafted and thrown into the meat grinder of the Vietnam War. And an interesting side note is that the classic uh, Doctor Strange Love, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, uh, by the masterful Stanley Kubrick, was released in 1964, uh, though it was, it was supposed to have been released in the final months of 1963, and was pushed back due to the Kennedy assassination. Now, the only point I've been trying to make here with this is that why we might romanticize the 1960s as free love and peace and drugs, and music, and the hippie generation, and the arrival of the Beatles, there was an immensely heightened sense of paranoia, and feelings of imminent collapse and destruction for civilization at large. Uh, so many things happened on a societal level during the 1960s, and most of it really wasn't that good, uh, but I guess you could say it was a mixed bag at best. But on a lighter note, 1964 also brought us both the Munsters and Adam's Family, television series, uh, both franchises of which have continued to have longevity over the past 60 years, including a new Wednesday Addams uh, Netflix series, which is coming soon, and a Rob Zombie adaptation of The Munsters. And it's kind of nice to think that during uh, this year of great turmoil at the heart of America and at the heart of the American public uh, with the Kennedy assassination, uh, that the creepy and the kooky and the spooky and the Munsters uh, were there to play some comic relief and to try to ease the public into not taking things quite so seriously and having a little fun and a dark sense of humor. The comedy horror of the era was providing a little catharsis for the public at the time of great crisis and uncertainty and fear and anxiety. And not to be forgotten with all of this, uh, 1962 uh, was the year that brought us the Halloween classic The Monster Mash by Bobby Boris Pickett and the Crypt Kickers. Yes, the early 1960s not only gave us the Adams Family and the Monsters on television, but also the Monster Mash on our radios. And now, to recite the classic Monster Mash poem, here's Alberta G. Rhythm, and I'll be right back after this special broadcast.
1: I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight for my monster from his slab began to rise and suddenly to my surprise. He did the monster mash, the monster mash, it was a graveyard smash. He did the mash, it caught on in a flash. He did the mash, he did the monster mash. From my laboratory in the castle east to the master bedroom where the vampires feast the ghouls all came from their humble abodes to get a jolt from my electrodes. They did the monster mash, the monster mash, it was a graveyard smash. They did the mash, it caught on in a flash. They did the mash, they did the monster mash. The zombies were having fun. Wahoo! Tennis shoe. The party had just begun. Wahoo! Tennis shoe. The guests included Wolfman, Dracula, and his son. The scene was rockin'. All were digging the sounds. Igor on chains. Backed by his baying hounds, the coffin bangers were about to arrive with their vocal group, the Crypt Kicker 5. They played the monster mash. The monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. They played the mash. It caught on in a flash. They played the mash. They played the monster mash. Out from his coffin, Drax's voice did ring seems he was troubled by just one thing he opened the lid and shook his fist and said whatever happened to my Transylvania Twist it's now the Monster Mash the Monster Mash and it's a graveyard smash it's now the mash it's caught on in a flash it's now the mash it's now the Monster Mash now everything's cool Drax a part of the band and my Monster Mash is the hit of the land for you the living this mash was meant to when you get to my door tell them Boris sent you then you can Monster Mash the monster mash, and do my graveyard smash, then you can mash, you'll catch on in a flash, then you can mash, then you can monster mash. Easy Igor, you impetuous young boy, wahoo, monster mash, wahoo, monster mash, wahoo, monster mash, wahoo, monster mash, wahoo, monster mash. mash.
0: And we now return to our regularly scheduled program. It was in 1967, we have a bit of a game changer, when Ira Levin publishes Rosemary's Baby. And this was the first prominent sign of a more introspective form of horror, uh, building upon the paranoia of the 1950s, fear of self and invaders from within society. And this, of course, was followed by a hit film in 1968 starring Mia Farrow and directed by Roman Polanski. And arguably, it was Rosemary's Baby, both the book and the film, which helped propel Satanism to the forefront of pop culture and horror fiction in the 1960s, which would heavily reverberate through the 70s and 80s and beyond. And I don't mean that it was promoting Satanism, uh, but it was using Satanism and ideas of the Apocalypse and Revelation and the Antichrist to tell a story. Rosemary's Baby was controversial on a variety of levels and still remains a horror classic well into the 21st century. Another notable work from 1967 was I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, which is a post-apocalyptic science fiction short story by American writer Harlan Ellison. And, of course, Harlan Ellison uh, would become a prolific writer throughout the 60s and 70s and perhaps is uh, most known uh, for his novel A Boy and His Dog, uh, which is also a work of post-apocalyptic science fiction. It was then in 1968 that we received one of the greatest and most notable and influential horror films of all time, and that comes with George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead, uh, which gave birth to the zombie movie. And of course we had a couple of other so-called zombie films before most notably with white zombies starring bella lugosi in 1932 and revolt of the zombies from 1936 but these weren't actual zombies uh, more so than humans who were still alive and were being controlled by means of black magic and voodoo and they certainly didn't devour people and rip out their intestines and eat them for lunch and of course night of the living dead Uh, would be the first in a holy trinity of films, uh, which included Dawn of the Dead in 1979, which is my all-time favorite horror film of all time. Um, Seriously, I'm pretty sure I've watched uh, the original uh, Dawn of the Dead at least 20 times by now. Uh, So, uh, needless to say, that's my favorite horror film of all time. It's in my top five. It rotates. Uh, I'll I'll let you know the rest of them probably in the next episode. Uh, But Dawn of the Dead never gets old as well as the follow-up in Day of the Dead in 1985. And, of course, Romero was a master who would also go on to direct such films as Season of the Witch, The Crazies, Martin, Creepshow, and much, much more. And it goes without saying that uh, George Romero, uh, without him, the zombie subgenre, might have never uh, been invented, and we surely wouldn't have gotten comic books like uh, The Walking Dead nor its television show counterpart. Um Romero was an icon, and while I'm sure his name will be mentioned a few more times in the next episode of this podcast, it was in 1968 that he would go on to change the shape of horror forever with Night of the Living Dead. And to close out the 60s and essentially put a nail in the coffin of the free love generation, it was in August of 1969 that we are first introduced to the Manson family. Uh, The Tate-LaBianca murders in 1969 were perpetrated by members of the Manson family in Los Angeles, California, under the direction of its leader, Charles Manson. They murdered five people, including actress Sharon Tate and several of her guests on August 9th and 10th, 1969. Allegedly displeased with the subsequent panic around the murders, Manson ordered uh, the murders of supermarket executive Lino LaBianca and his wife Rosemary the following evening in the Los Feliz section of Los Angeles with the goal of making it seem like the murders had been perpetrated by the Black Panthers. And of course, we all know about the Manson murders and the cult of Charles Manson, as well as how this event also only helped to fuel that obsession uh, with serial killer culture that I've spoken about time and time again during these episodes. Uh, but here's a very interesting mind-bender of coincidences uh, that comes with the Manson family murders. And that comes with Sharon Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant at the time of her murder, and who was also the wife of director Roman Polanski. And of course, Roman Polanski was noted for the film Rosemary's Baby, And the film Rosemary's Baby was filmed at the famous Dakota apartment buildings in New York City. Now, with this, we can't forget that Charles Manson believed that a race war was about to happen, and he was going to help kick it off, uh, saying that the Beatles' White Album, and in particular the song Helter Skelter, was a secret code word for this coming race war uh, that Manson was supposed to help create. Flash forward another decade, and it was in 1980 that John Lennon, one of the Beatles, was assassinated outside of the Dakota apartment building, which was where much of Rosemary's baby was filmed. So just some odd little coincidences there involving the Beatles, Charles Manson, Sharon Tate, Roman Polanski, and the Dakota apartment building in which John Lennon was shot to death outside the entrance. Uh, But my main point with this is being, in the week before the famous festival of Woodstock, the 60s were capped off with the grisly and much-publicized murders perpetrated by the Manson family and effectively uh, helped to bring an end not only to the decade, uh, but an end to the peace and love generation altogether. Now, hell's bells, ladies and gentlemen. We did it. We've gotten to the end of this episode, which covered 1900 to 1970. And I want to thank you very much. If you made it to the end of today's episode, you deserve a cookie and a pat on the back. And I sincerely hope uh, you enjoyed today's program and maybe learned a little something and that you'll tune into the final part of this series, uh, which will be part four, which will uh, finish off the topic of supernatural horror in literature and film and television and much more spanning from the year 1970 to 2021 and beyond. And again, I know I left a lot out of today's episode and it still ended up running over an hour uh, so if there are any key elements uh, you think I should have covered, or if you have any feedback or critique, I'd love to hear from you. And you can contact me through Conspiraporn.com, or please feel free to reach out if uh, you're a friend on Facebook or Instagram. Or you can email me at mad, M-A-D, the number is 247, at weirdness.com. That's mad247 at weirdness.com. You can email me there. Uh, likewise, I hope you'll check out Conspiraporn.com as well as my personal blog at www.primordialproductions.info, and that you'll take a look at my original art page, uh, which features uh, over 300 pieces of my original art, at www.geneticmemory.online. Uh, if you'd like to run a featured article on conspiraporn Porn or be involved with this podcast, or if you have any ideas for future articles, episodes, please feel free to hit me up. Okay, that about does it for today's episode of Conspiracy Porn, We Survived. Uh, please stay tuned to part four of this series, which will arrive in the next few weeks, uh, where we'll finish off with the years 1970 to 2021, and all things horror and that go bump in the night. Until next time, this is Mad, signing off. Peace profound.